0: I, I don't have a choice anymore about this,
1: <laughs> Roman. You have no more free will. Ever since <laughs> you had a daughter, no more free will. Uh, hey, you're listening to Quarantined Comics. That was rumman's groan of, I don't know if that was misery, ecstasy, or or joy, but we'll find out later on in this episode. All right, so you are listening to Quarantined Comics, where we review or re-review comics and graphic novels we read in the distant past, or in the case of this week's selection, very recent This text. morning. I read it. I finished it this morning. <laughs> Roman read it so recently, it was it was this morning. By the way, remember, if there's a book that you loved and want us to read, or if you want to troll us with a bad one, write, write to us at qtdcomics at gmail. Will you be our first demon? Maybe by the time we get to this one, you'll be the second. <laughs> We're being optimistic. I'm Ryan Joe, or Joe Ryan. I'm Roman sure. Segel, or Roman Coke. Or Roman Coke, or Roman Cycle. Or oh, Roman Psycho, Don't yes. And... Okay. Our shameful secret is that neither of us know how to read. And this week, though, we'll take a shot at my favorite thing is Monsters, the first part of the debut graphic novel by Emile Ferris. Monsters takes place in late 1960s Chicago, where a little girl named Karen Reyes, who imagines herself as a werewolf detective, tries to solve the murder, or maybe it was really a suicide, of her mysterious and seductive neighbor Anka. But as she navigates the darkness of Anka's past, the encroaching darkness of Karen's own present starts to become unavoidable. Monsters is many things, a coming-of-age story, a story of survival, a detective yarn. It is at once whimsical, grounded in reality, and horrific. And we'll try to do it justice. And mostly. it has Nazis. And like every good adventure comic, it has Nazis. So, Roman, you're very fresh, considering that it's probably finished a couple of hours ago. So, so what were your... What were your thoughts? Well, to be fair, I've been reading it all week. And you know, this
0: book, when we started hanging out,
1: before, literally
0: months, I think, before the podcast like formed into an idea, you had recommended this. And uh, I've always enjoyed the strange recommendations you made because these are books I would not have picked up on my own. And I tried reading it, and I couldn't get into it. And this time around, because of this podcast... I've spent the last week reading it. And my wife's like, that's a really weird looking book you're holding there. <laughs> like, I genuinely enjoyed it. I I really want Karen werewolf detective action figure. <laughs> like, or I want to see someone cosplay that because it's adorable. And um, adorable. That's what this book is. And it's, there are disturbing parts, but I came to really know and like the characters in this book. And I, I just, I'm just you, really attached to these people.
1: So, so you mentioned that you couldn't get into it initially. And I'm kind of just kind of wondering why that, why that is, and when, at what point did you, did you eventually realize that this was uh, that, that you could really get? Well, dig the, in? F- the
0: first time was a few months ago, right? At your recommendation, I got it from the library because this had been getting a lot of really interesting press coverage. So, you mentioning it wasn't the first time I'd heard of it. There might have been an NPR story or some newsletter post. And I tried, I just, but it's so um, non-linear in its approach. And that's not necessarily in, from a narrative storytelling standpoint. It's just, it jumps between styles and storytelling perspective. And if I'm being really honest, the first time I thought it was trying too hard. And so I just, I kind of lost interest. Too many other things going on, work, life, kid, etc. But this time, you know, with the mission, knowing we were recording it tonight, I was like, I'm going to. You know, I'm going to put myself through the paces, regularly reading it every night for the last week. And this morning, while my daughter was watching cartoons, I'm at my last call it fifth of the book. I was, by that point, I was really hooked with these people, with these characters Karen, Dee's, the mom, Anka. And it was just, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, overall, it was adorable. I, and that seems so condescending but it's not.
1: I. When you're talking about Karen, because Karen, the, the way uh, Emile Ferris depicts Karen is, is as a werewolf detective, like literally a werewolf girl dressed in a trench coat and a hat. And there is something kind of but the, adorable the, the, about her and precocious because she's trying to solve that's, this murder. That's, and she's a little that's girl. That's not
0: what's adorable. I mean, yes, absolutely. The cutest costume slash action figure ever. But no, the characters are so well fleshed out and the idea of perspective, this little girl, in in the face of a lot of really bad things at home and in the world. I mean, it happened in the late '60s. The book takes place square in the middle between JFK's assassination and Martin Luther King's assassination. Karen, at some point, says that was the one night my mom got drunk. And then with MLK, you see something similar with her brother. So I just really connected with with the human level. Even Dee's, like, um, kind of a weirdo, but like, I really connected with him as a as a person. So I, I. I I've got a lot of criticisms um, and questions, but what about you, Ryan? I mean, you recommended this to me several months ago. You So this would have been your second reading. What are what are your impressions of this?
1: I really liked it more the second time I read it because I kind of, I could see what Emile Ferris was doing. It took me a few pages when yeah. I first read it to figure out where she so was going. So you powered through it, though. This Well, it opens with, with Karen imagining she's being hunted by the angry citizens of Chicago. Emile Ferris is kind of spending some time trying to teach you how to read her book and how to read Karen. It took me a few pages to to figure that out. Once she introduced Anka and the death of Anka, I think that created a sort of narrative drive that propels you forward. And from that, it gives Emile Ferris a lot of leeway to introduce very gradually all of these other threads. Karen's mother has cancer D's and his issues. And of course, ultimately Anka's really dark history as a Holocaust survivor. But all of that's catalyzed by Anka's death and Karen's investigation into, into her death. The second time I read it, knowing what was going to happen, I kind of had this sense of dread and it actually created a much deeper emotional impression on me, kind of knowing what you mentioned is that, remember how you said earlier, this book is sandwiched between the deaths of JFK and of Martin Luther King right. Jr. What's happening with Karen is very much the calm before the storm. It's between two national tragedies, but in Karen's personal life, there was a tragedy that happened in the past or maybe several tragedies that she doesn't know about. You know, she gets little clues gradually that, that something happened. Maybe her brother D's shot somebody and killed somebody. We don't know. And then there's this threat of tragedy in the future with karen's drunk father potentially coming back in the picture regaining custody of karen so you have the sense of karen beginning her investigation into anka's death between two really bad situations and i didn't see that structure the first time but reading it the second time i kind of saw it and it felt like even as karen embarks on these whimsical adventures there's these threats closing in these real threats that go beyond her whimsy, that could really, really affect her life in a really negative way. And that, to me, was also very propulsive. It created the sense of tension that I didn't have the first time I read it, uh, the sense of dread for Karen's well-being. Yeah, and again,
0: it's because it's the whole book, the narration, et cetera, is told from her perspective. And it's from the perspective of a little 10-year-old girl or a 12-year-old girl, however old she is. And it was... Yeah, it was just... uh, seeing the world through a little girl's eyes in her interpretations, in her journaling. And you've, we've covered some books with some really great art and something this podcast continues to teach me. Like while I've fallen out of love with comics, I fell in love with the writing of the medium. And I kind of just been kind of ignoring the art for the last several years. And some of the books we've been reviewing have some really conscious choices on the art and the art style is very intentional it's literally it's not even a style for the sake of being a style it's this is what a little girl would draw and mm-hmm. it, it's still more hyper realized for a comic book right it's not the drawings of a 12 year old kid but the moments when you know that this was a very conscious style that was chosen is when Emil. You know, Ferris, chooses to enter this hyper-realistic mode. So there's a couple of pages where you see Karen as she actually is, not as Detective Wolf Girl Karen. And there's a couple of scenes, and they're they're hidden in this book, but there's one. And I literally, I thought I was looking at my daughter, like looking at this little girl sleeping in bed. And by this point, I mean, it's probably only a third of the way through the book, and you're just kind of hooked into this person. And the adorable, like, God, adorable is the wrong word, and I'll come up with the right word by the end of this, but it... The style pulls you in because it's believable that this entire thing was drawn by this character, Karen, who you're coming to know. You're seeing the world through her eyes. It's written through her eyes. It's told through her eyes. And um, that first person narrative, both written and drawn, is just so compelling.
1: That's actually a great point. There's There's like a real fidelity to Karen's imagination. You know, everything that happens in here is something that would spin off from the mind of a little girl who loves horror movies who is from the 1960s. Did you did you ever see you saw Pan's Labyrinth yeah. right? <laughs> so if you if you ever listen to the special features on the DVD, remember DVDs, Roman? <laughs> it's, uh, they they, they were right after like laser discs, but the, the director's commentary, Guillermo del Toro talks about how he was very, very conscious. He, he had the, all of these ideas for the wonderland mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. protagonist in Pan's Labyrinth goes to. And he was like, oh, some of them were just, he realized were just way too complicated. They were beyond the scope of this girl's imagination. And so a lot of what he ultimately created, it just can't be fantastical for the sake of being fantastical. It has to spin off of something that she could conceivably imagine. And I think Emile Ferris in depicting Karen, as you mentioned, was really great at that. You... You had mentioned earlier that you you had fallen out of love of com with comics. I just was curious about that. I n- I never heard no, you say I, that.
0: No, I um, God, that's probably a little harsh. I'm. It's one of my great loves, right? I've said this: comics, rock and roll, etc. It's in my life. I've had to put park things on the shelf. There's just too many other things going on. What I have done to more efficiently navigate. Consumption of the comic book medium where there are amazing stories being told is focus on the story and not focus on the art. And what makes comic books different and special from reading fiction or nonfiction novels or listen to audiobooks, whatnot, is the the blending of the art, right? And I was actually today just listening to our, our Marvel Man episode and I went off on a rant about how I don't like it when artist and a writer team up and then you get the bait like frank quietly and great morrison on the x-men and then frank quietly just bails um for his own reasons right or alan davis and alan moore in uh miracle man marvel man and when the art is done consistently when the two are done in tandem with each other like with this book like with scott pilgrim where it is a singular vision mike allred's another good example with red rocket 7 like when it's just i think it's extra special when the creator is talented both as an artist and a writer and they blend the two it's great when you watch two people working amazingly well together for a hundred issues but so i think part of what had driven me to fall out of love was i was seeing these amazing story stories being woven but at the expense of the art right so therefore it was still a really good story and a really good medium and i could consume it much faster because there are pictures next to the words like a kid's book but with more complicated storylines but some of the books we've been choosing have been just like uh, a very intentional choice in a pairing, kind of like pairing wine with, with food or a
1: meal. So, yeah. I like how you think about this podcast. We are we are pairing wine with, with food. We're, we're sommeliers, <laughs> Roman.
0: No, this is an novels. excuse for me to read comic books more regularly and drink in my basement while talking into a microphone about those comic books.
1: Ryan... Okay, can we can we talk real fast about Emile Ferris's art yes. um, before we I, I don't before we leave because I, I I was just struck by how unconventional it is there are you know I mean we've both read a lot of comics and there are certain conventions in in modern day comics and I guess what was interesting to me in particular is how each page feels almost more like a collage than than you know panel by panel storytelling in fact there are a lot of pages where they just don't have which just doesn't or are, on on the flip side of the
0: things. collage there are some. And I'm not talking about the covers, because that's a beef I have that we will tackle later. There's some amazing full-page pieces of art here that look like, and again, by the pen and pencil style, the intentional style choices, whether it's Karen walking off into the distance, someone staring at a cathedral. Yeah, there's just some amazing full-page spreads.
1: And and what I also love about her is how individualistic almost every person Emile Ferris illustrates is. There's this page where there's this point in the story where Deez and, and Karen are walking through Chicago and there's this like double page spread of all of the people that that Karen sees waiting for the bus. And each individual is so strange and unique and just kind of lovingly illustrated. And I feel like Emile Ferris loves people, she loves their quirks, she loves the idiosyncrasies and the way they look and the way they dress, and she tries to capture that in her art. This is, it's unusual, you know, for most graphic novels, they just kind of go through, you're just burning through the story, everything is, everything is relevant to this telling the story, and Emile Ferris will break, and she'll just kind of observe the people around her, and give each one like, you know, really really detailed illustrations, kind of honor them in that way. And I think that's that's what makes this book That's one of the things that makes this book really really special It's love of of people. There's
0: a pro and a con to it. And you saying this kind of unveils a little bit of for me, like one of my frustrations the first time around. It's all foreground. Like as we were talking, I was kind of flipping through kind of hearing what you had to say about it. It's all foreground. There is very little background. It's if there's stuff that doesn't belong it's just cross hatching <laughs> like she she overuse uh, not overuse it, she uses it beautifully well such that every drawing is in the foreground and it is at times exhausting to visually consume and not exhausting in a bad way it's a very fulfilling experience but the plate runneth over and over and over and it was a exhausting experience to read this book and which is why it took me five days to make my way through this never mind it's a weighty thing to hold but it was a weighty thing to behold as well it was like because you want to take it all in and it's not like oh if you if you miss that detail in the background to your point everything is very like lovingly crafted and i almost feel an obligation to pay attention to every line on the page
1: so i will disagree with you on on it being exhausted at least that wasn't my experience you you know how there's those scenes where karen is Walking in the museum, and she kind of envisions herself in each of the paintings. I mean, you can kind of tell Emile Ferris loves the museum. The art, and specifically the Art Institute of Chicago. The Art Institute of Chicago. Sorry, I forgot which one it was. (laughs) Being from New York and California, it's it's um, a it's a museum I've um, spent a lot of time at. That's why. So I maybe that was another little um, touchstone for me. But keep going. Well, in a way, the book kind of—I almost kind of felt like Karen as she kind of like dives into these paintings. You know, she—it was immersive for you. Emil Ferris, Ferris, it was immersive. She wants, Emil Ferris wants you to slow down and read about all of the strange people in Chicago or all of the background that she's bringing to the foreground, as you mentioned, and very purposefully. And I felt like I had been brought into the late 1960s Chicago, into Karen's world, in a way that I'm often not in graphic novels where they're primarily interested in just telling the surface story. Yeah and they don't give you they don't there's not there's not a lot of time to to breathe beyond just getting the plot points out in a way it kind of almost felt novelistic in the sense that like in a movie you watch a movie and there's no inf- there's no information there's no plot detail that is irrelevant everything has to be there to move something forward and in a novel you can kind of meander a little bit and for some people that's that's not a good thing they they prefer to just move through get to the point and Emile Ferris's graphic novel felt more like a novel, just because she would pause, get away from Karen for a little bit, and just kind of look at what Karen's seeing through her eyes, and then we go back to the story. And I actually really appreciated that. Yeah, no, so ex- exhausting.
0: Wrong word. Overly fulfilling. I couldn't. I don't think I could read this book in one sitting. It has to be done because it it fills the cup. It, it just, and especially again, because it's from this everything is painstakingly told from this little girl's point of view. And so you really, you are transported in in a way.
1: Yeah, I actually agree. It's not, it's not a one read book. Most comics you can kind of skim almost. Yeah. You can binge. This isn't a binge. This is sort of a slow burn. Um, And you really want to take the time to sit back and appreciate everything that, that Emile Ferris is trying to, is trying to do both visually and narratively. You had you had mentioned a few complaints, and I feel we got to. We, I think we talked about one of them, but what what else? What else didn't quite well, work for you? It's,
0: there are two things, and the first one, when I realized it. Okay, so the first time I tried reading this uh, a few months ago, it, this book, if you've seen it, has a very hand drawn feel because it, it is, but it's meant to look like a little girl drew it in her notebook, and you know, you almost like I didn't know anything about Emil Ferris, didn't know how old she is. So I was like, oh. You know, this is a story from a little girl's perspective. Maybe it's like, a, and I think someone said this is her first comic book. It's completely, you know, hand-drawn, so to speak. Um, so I was like, oh, it must be like an up-and-comer, like in her 20s. And I have no idea how old Emil Ferris is. So it literally looks like a first-timer drew it in a notebook and scanned all the pages and sent it to the publisher. And to be clear, painstakingly drew it in their notebook. Like if you've ever drawn in a, a spiral-bound notebook, this has that feel. And I love that. Love it. Okay, so enter the beef. Because of my love, this is where the hate comes out. (laughs) About my first 20 to 30% in, I was staring at those beautiful spiral-bound pages. And I was looking at the blue and the red lines. You know where I'm going with this, Ryan? It's it's
1: fake. I don't, but I think... uh,
0: They literally, like, go look at any page. They literally chose, or email Ferris or her publisher... These were not drawn on spiral bound notebooks. It's meant to like, and they literally overlaid blue and red lines. And even the punch hole, the punch holes are a little bit better because they are at different, slightly different perspectives for left and right, but definitely not. They don't get deeper or less deep as you go. And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it like every page. So I'm sorry if I've ruined this for everybody, but it, it just shattered the illusion, the simulacrum, was like laying bare for me and it was like oh so this is supposed to look like a little girl drew it you aren't drawing it like a little girl drew it the way she would draw it on those pages so the too good to be trueness of it that that bubble was popped for me <laughs> And I, again it doesn't take away from the story it just now that i can see it and i realize it and i'm not trying to pick a fight with this book i just i couldn't unsee it after that
1: that's interesting because i i Felt that they were trying to evoke. I mean, they are trying to evoke the sensation of this being Karen's sketchbook. But obviously, to me, it, it's it's not. But I literally thought I mean, literally, the literally the thought Emil,
0: this young up and coming comic book artist, probably filled twenty notebooks to make this thing, <laughs> and that's not what it was.
1: Why did that ch- change the way Every, you? Every
0: do- I have a, I know a few friends who have written books, right? And I have read their first and their second books, and when they're fiction. You can't help, if you know the author, you can't help but kind of be like, oh, this must be, you know, it's a piece of something they know or they've seen. And I won't call out the name of this one author, but it was clear his first book was about his childhood. I couldn't help see that. So when I was reading this book about Karen and and falling in love with the little kid Karen and in, in a sense of like paternal love um, as a father, and also feeling a little paternal for Emil, the author, because I had heard the press of this book. This first-time comic book artist—that you can tell the love and the care that went into crafting the story, the drawings, everything in the foreground, et cetera, et cetera—and it was just something that—and even these, these, the simulacrum, This is all in a hand-drawn notebook. That's clearly what Emil, the artist, must have done, because that's what Karen would have done, because they're they're linked somehow. And to discover <laughs> that that was not the case—that was an artistic choice to mimic it. I I don't, I didn't feel betrayed, but I just, it's something I couldn't unsee and I couldn't stop thinking about. And even when I would pause and look at some of the beautiful art, one of the pages I I mentioned earlier, I can't unsee the, the fake blue and red lines on top of the art, not the art being on top of the blue. Like you still could have faked it, but they literally laid the blue and red lines on top of the art not behind the art.
1: Okay, I see what you're saying. So it basically took you out of the story. It was so distracting that it took me ke- out of the and story. And it keeps
0: taking me out of the story. Like Once I realized that, I'd, I'd get into the groove, I'd really be enjoying something, and maybe I'd unfocus my eyes and I'd see it again. And I just, I continuously cannot unsee it.
1: Okay, so if they if they didn't print this book on paper made to look like binder paper, do you think that would have changed your read? On it, or would you have been able to focus on other things? Would you have been more immersed? Well, well to you would be, have been to more be clear, immersed
0: it, it's, if you just said that. It's the fact that I can tell they put the blue lines on top of the art, so it almost ruins the art. Does that make sense? Like literally, these blue lines. There is a blue line drawn on top of the drawing, not underneath. The drawing.
1: Yeah, it's distracting. It's a it's a, it's a distracting decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm I'm probably belaboring this point too much, but it's this idea of the simulacrum. Once you know. I'm in the uncanny valley with it now, you know, like I just, it takes me out and it it took a lot of hard work to pull myself back from it. But the other thing, and so this is another artistic choice is so the main character, Karen loves monster movies, loves monster comic books. And so every 10 to 20 pages, there's a cover of a monster graphic novel or a monster comic book, whether it's spectral or, you know, something else. And They're beautiful. They're great, but they have nothing to do with the story. They don't even break the chapter. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. And I was flying through them. Like I tried on a few. The Frankenstein one is good, but even like well, the Frankenstein obviously it were close. Of course, that one that one was. But that was one of the few ones. The other thing, like some of them have dates, some of them don't. So are we talking about the passage of time? Is it? I don't know when Kennedy and MLK were assassinated exactly, but. Are these dates meant to 63 and I think 66 Oh, okay. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, but I think they're definitely between the, 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 yeah. yeah. So, okay. So the dates, maybe they do connote a month has passed, but you would, they were almost like ads versus chapter breaks. So you'd be like in the middle of a uh, conversation that Dee's and Karen are having. And then now all of a sudden you have this cover and it, it was not, it didn't feel like it was commenting on what was happening in the story. Maybe something that happened five or ten pages prior, but maybe I just didn't get it. I don't know. I mean, now I'm looking at spectral, and that's clearly her emaciated friend Sandy. So,
1: yeah, exactly. So, so actually, I that's why I disagree. They actually did comment on what happened in the next chapter. For instance, when we meet Sam Silverberg, that's Anka's, that's Anka's husband. It's it's a picture of uh, of a a mummy, a scary mummy. Right, but that also recalls Sam. You know, he kinda has this all of these bandages on his hand, for instance. Is there a deeper connection? There might be. That's but you know, I don't didn't feel like I really needed one. Another example, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is when she meets Mr. Gronin, smiling Jack Gronin, right? who is both very scary, but also very kind and yeah, protective, particularly I'll take particularly this, I'll take this one. Well.
0: I'm going to, I'll die on my sword for the blue lines, but I'll take this one back about the covers. Yeah, you're right.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, but you know what? I mean, it's very subtle. She's not waving her hand saying this signals that. There are little subtle indications of what might eventually come. And I actually think that Works with also within Karen's psychology. She, Karen, throughout the novel, graphic novel, often makes connections that probably other people don't make, and she might see one. Th- you know, she's does she? She's she has a synesthesia, right? Where where her sense of sight would trigger her sense of smell, or vice versa. So she'll often make connections that other people don't make, and I feel like with these comics, there are little things in in the covers of these horror comics that. Foreshadow very subtly something that we might see in the next chapter, whether it's thematic or whether it's just a little physical detail that Emilio Ferris uh, decides to draw. So in.
0: I want to I want to ask a couple of other questions about two of the other major supporting characters in this book, Deez and Anka. Okay. Yes. So Deez's story comes full circle very quickly. Like I I remember this morning being on the couch while my daughter's watching cartoons, finishing this. And, you know, we're embroiled in the story of this book, and I could feel in the weight of the book. I didn't have that many pages left. And so they really raced through the revelation of Deez's original sin, so to speak. So that's cool. We'll come back to that. I don't know if I was powering through it to finish last night and this morning. There's so many things about Anka that I either didn't recognize, like, who was she running away from? How did she get out of Germany? Like who killed her? Did we
1: figure that out? Or is that part two? Book- That's part two. So this is part one. Like Rusty Brown, we only read half of it. This is literally only half of the story. Emil Ferris book one. Emil Ferris's My Favorite Thing is Monsters Book Two, supposed to come out September 2021, according to Amazon. It was supposed to come out I think before September 2020. So it's been delayed for I think more than a year um so yeah this is actually halfway through i don't think we have D's full circle i think we have them half circle okay and with okay, Anka, so
0: to, it, we've to be determined what what the final connective thread is and good Cause, cause, yes I, yes we're not there as yet. i probably should have wikipedia it after but it just it does feel like a conclusion that's the thing karen's mom passes away we find out what happened with these originally there was a murder but, and even Anka's backstory is mostly written out. So it just, it could come to a conclusion here if it needed to.
1: It, it's just an, un, it's, an, an extent, it's still So, yeah, I think that's, we get some conclusion. We get the hint of a conclusion for me. And I think that that's appropriate. You know, we, we hear who D's probably killed, but we don't know anything about the victim. We don't know the why. And we don't even know if our supposition that he killed his brother Victor. Spoiler alert! Sorry, guys. We could do spoilers all the time in the show. No,
0: first, first of all, no one's listening, and second of all, if you are listening, you should have read the book first. <laughs>
1: so, you know, so so there's a lot of questions about Deez's original sin, whatever it exactly is, and then with Anka, I think there's still the whole situation of once she gets out of the, con- it ends her story ends in Leaving this the book concentration, yeah. once she frees herself from, the con- right. But her fate is okay. In order, in order to save people from the concentration camp, she says, what if I, I build a brothel? And that, that's basically the only business that, that Anka knows she was raised in a brothel. She was prostituted as a young girl and she's trying to save people from the concentration camp and she can get more people out if she builds a brothel. And I think that's going to be the next step in her journey. And it's, could very possibly lead to her corruption and is probably going to lead to her doing some bad things that we haven't seen her do right. yet. She you know, right she, now, she's she, just she, trying she, to survive. She's an innocent victim. victim survivor, yeah. Is, is that going to be the case in book two? And I kind of don't think it will be. I think we are going to see a side of Anka that is that is ugly and that probably originated in her knee in, in, in altruism in her desire to save other people and in her need for survival, which is what makes things which, which is what potentially makes it very, very interesting. And then in that we might finally learn why she was killed or why she killed herself. Well, the I, and the I, case, think, I think a lot of other
0: loose threads, which I was okay to kind of be flailing in the wind can, can be resolved as well. The, the thread of the father coming back, the landlord, who's paying Karen to make sure her brother isn't boning her, his husband.
1: Um, You know, before we, we, we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you what you thought about Anka's section, because amazing. That's that's just extensive. I, I,
0: I really have to watch what I say on this show, but like there is a soft spot for me, whether it's Schindler's list or life is beautiful. Right. By Roberto Benigni mouse of these stories. And they need to be told or they will be forgotten. And this was such a narrow, small slice of, and they even called this out. And I think you did as well. Prostitution was one of the few things you could thrive in. Appar- apparently, I don't know if this is the case, during this time in Germany and showing the descent of Germany into the madness. And Anka is kind of navigating that. You are transported to Germany in the 40s and and how this young woman slightly older than Karen. And there, there's something really interesting about that. You know, when you tell stories to little kids, you typically feature characters that are slightly older than them, right? Because that's what they aspire to do. And that's what was happening here. Karen, who is kind of, I'm guessing, probably 10 or 12, is, is seeing and hearing on the tape the story of Anka starting at an age of 12 or 14 or 15 into her 20s. And it's just a beautiful story. Uh, Again, beautiful is the wrong word because of the horrors that Anka has to face. And she has to make some terrible choices. She's going to rescue eight people from a concentration camp to enter prostitution. like That's the only way out. She has to go back to this man that she was afraid of because that is the only way out of this concentration camp. So uh, This is the kind of horror that not just affects me, but that has to be read, you know, you know, Ryan, like I don't, I don't mind spiral horror, I guess, but like this is the kind of horror I don't like reading it. I I feel an obligation to read it. So yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, Anka's story was was amazing and clutching and truly horrific. I mean, what happens to her and what she has to do ultimately to, to survive in Berlin and beyond. And it's also interesting, you know, kind of looking back on it. This is once Anka's story gets introduced, the book takes a darker turn because be, up to that point, it's a little girl's fun. Uh, it's fun. It's, fun, it's
0: fun and books. games for a murder. Murder mystery. Yeah, it's Scooby. Kind of it's Scooby Doo.
1: Exactly. It's Scooby Doo, and you kind—I of, mean—you get a sense of the darkness on the periphery with Sandy and her absentee aunt and uncle, and uh, you know, of the of the racism and poverty that that karen has to face but the real darkness kind of is at bay and then once you get into anka's story that's real horror right there and then afterwards i feel like we start seeing some of the karen has to, to start confronting some of the real darkness that is going to exist well, in her life from attempted rape to her mother's cancer and to, to the threat of her father and that's
0: coming um caring the, the name of the book is my favorite thing is monsters Karen's favorite thing is monsters. She loves the Wolfman. She loves Dracula and whatever Dracula spelled backwards was. That was amazing. Uh, I'm reminded of Scrubs and Dr. Acula.
1: Oh,
0: Alucard.
1: Right. Did, you, did you ever play Castlevania? I did. Was, was that a character? Did you, Alucard. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah. Alucard was, uh, was one of the characters. I'll, 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 uh, I don't think he was in first Castlevania. I think he was in Castlevania. I uh, only three. made it
0: to two. I have watched the first Netflix season, but yeah, Simon Belmont for the win. But no, here's what I would say. Little girl Karen is obsessed with monsters. She has an idea of what monsters are, and those monsters don't scare her. She loves
1: them, but this whole book is about—they protect her. In fact, they protect her. She's, she's asking them for her but their this, protection. You can't kill a monster with but cancer. This whole
0: book is about real monsters. This whole book is about real monsters, be it Nazis, perverted old men, bully rapist teenage boys, creepy landlords. Never mind murder. Like murder, so <laughs> that's so trite. Uh, but people who literally will torture you and put you through the horrors of life, the the father who is going to come back and make her life hell, cancer, killing the person you love more than anyone else, right? The threat of I can't tell my older brother who I love that I was almost raped because he would kill these people and then he would be gone because he's a Hispanic
1: Right after her mother dies and the monsters that Karen calls upon, they, they can't save her, of course. Karen makes a distinction herself between good monsters and bad monsters. And then the good monsters being the ones that she kind of relates to, the misfits and the people with their quirks and, uh, and, their, and their, their oddities. And then there's the bad monsters who seek to control. That Karen was such a great line.
0: Kind of, such a great line.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's a revelation. For her, And it, it's a subtle one. A lot of coming of age novels, there's almost this sort of leap from childhood to adulthood. And all that feels artificial or too fast too too soon. And with Karen, it's sort of these gradual realizations. Um, and it's sad because she's so whimsical and bizarre in the beginning. And you can kind of see, you know, she's going to have to learn how to differentiate and deal with whatever's coming. And that creates its own sense of dread also and and foreboding. So, Roman, do you know what we're going to read next week? If this week you got to hear the
0: story from, as told from the little girl's perspective, that's what we're going to do next week. But instead of it being the horrors of real life, we're going to be revisiting Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples' saga, which I would argue is the best current book on the stands right now. It's effectively How I Met Your Mother in space. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. We're reading the first nine volumes because the creators have taken a break for about a year. So back in the sequel theme. But it's just, it's a fun, wacky story that my friend Tristan's going to join us for. And I think you're going to have a lot of fun with this one, right?
1: All right. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, And remember if uh, you are listening <laughs> and i hope you are and have a comic book recommendation for us email us at qtc sorry not qtc qtdcomics@gmail.com qtd that's our perverted abbreviation for quarantined all right reach out to us and we'll see you next week